0: The message this morning is entitled, We Ain't From Around Here. You might attempt at a southern accent before we have actual southerners here. Don't tell them. Um, this is somewhat inspired by my experience at man camp. We had a man camp at Moose Lake uh, a couple weeks ago. and I rolled up there and I noticed I was the only one wearing skinny jeans. <clears throat> Pretty well everyone else was decked out in some camo, some real rugged looking fellows there. And I was like, oh, a little bit different. And I got myself in some conversations, you know. These people were regaling each other with their hunting stories, you know. And it kind of got on the topic because I guess it's it's uh, you know duck and goose season or whatever right now, Uh, or close coming, whatever. Uh, And they're you know they were talking all about that. And then someone turns to me and they're just like, "Hey, Chris, you ever murdered any birds?" (laughs) Uh, And I was like, "You know, well, actually, I was I was uh, just a couple weeks ago I was coming home from Emmetton. It was." It was dark. I was driving 100 kilometers an hour, about a couple, a couple kilometers from St. Paul. I crested a hill, and all of a sudden there was a, a mama duck with all of her ducklings. I couldn't stop in time, so I took out a whole family of them. <laughs> i felt horrific ever since. Um, but anyway, so I have indeed murdered some birds. Uh, my story was obviously very different. They were like, that's not what we meant. I was like, that's okay. This morning I'd like to talk about somebody that learned we ain't from around here the hard way. Uh, His name is King Solomon. He's the wisest king who ever lived. And actually arguably, it's hard to do the math, but arguably he's the richest person to ever walk the face of the earth. So Solomon is the son of King David. And he's very famous for having this gift of wisdom given to him by God. The Bible describes him as being like this walking encyclopedia. And he would use this wisdom to just rule extremely efficiently. And he was able to just get all of this wealth for the nation of Israel and all this wealth uh, for himself as well. And the nation expanded to its greatest heights under him. And he was so successful that all these world leaders would be sending their ambassadors to come hang out with him to figure out what's what's his secret. How can he do this? What's what's making him so great? How is he so smart? How is he doing what he's doing? Those familiar with the story know that Solomon kind of let things go to his head, and he didn't really remain faithful to God throughout his entire life. He made some moral compromises, and it kind of messed things up for him. He ended up writing some of the Bible, so we have the book of Proverbs, which he primarily wrote, and that's basically a collection of wise sayings that he learned over time. We also have the book of Ecclesiastes, which he's written towards the end of his life, and it's written to spare future generations from making the same mistakes that he did. So today we're going to read from Ecclesiastes. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1. And yeah, this is a selection of scripture that's talking about how, how Solomon tried to find joy. He, fi- he tried to find purpose. He tried to find life in pursuing all of the pleasures of this world. And even though he literally had any, everything the world could ever provide, he found himself still empty Still miserable, still wanting more. Here we go, chapter 2, verse 1. I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless. So I said, laughter is silly. What good does it do to seek pleasure? After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. And while they were still, and while still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my many flourishing groves. I bought slaves, both men and women, and others who were born into my household. I owned large herds and flocks, more than any of the kings who had lived in Jerusalem before me. I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire. So I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. Lord, we just thank you for your word, we pray that it's going to touch us this morning. So we see Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He was the richest man in the world, the most famous man in the world he had everything the world would deem valuable he had sex money and power but yet found it all so meaningless found it didn't really satisfying none of it was really worthwhile funnily enough today we still see this dynamic play out in culture we have these these superstars these famous people that they get everything the world could ever offer and yet time and again they find themselves still searching for more still not happy Still miserable. Sometimes they're so down in the dumps about it that they've climbed to the height, you know, the the highest heights on earth, and they still don't like the view. And sometimes even find themselves being suicidal. You know, you'd think after hearing multiple of these stories that we'd wise up and say, we need to build our life on what matters. We need to pursue what really matters, live a life of, of true meaning. But time and again, we find ourselves pining after these same worldly desires and we, we find ourselves pursuing the same worldly pleasures. And like Solomon says, all we're really doing is chasing the wind. We're wasting our time. Uh, when I was driving home, I think from church a couple weeks ago, this, uh, this song happened to come on my, uh, my shuffle, I guess. Uh, just randomly kind of came on, and I've known it since I was a kid, but Kind of one of the most beautiful things about growing up is I now actually understand the lyrics of songs I've been listening to for a long time. But anyways, uh, this song came on uh, it's from the early 2000s called The Beautiful Letdown by Switchfoot. And I'll just read you some of the lyrics here. It says, it was a beautiful letdown when I crashed and burned, when I found myself alone, unknown, and hurt. It was a beautiful letdown the day I knew that all the riches this world had to offer me would never do in a world full of bitter pain and bitter doubts I was trying so hard to fit in fit in until I found out that I don't belong here the songs really about chasing after all the world has to offer but only for it to fail on you to find yourself let down but in that let down realizing the beauty in that and the beauty in being let down by the world because you've been now adjusted to go after what really matters and this realization that we're trying to fit into a place that we don't belong. And that whole we don't belong here. We ain't from around here. That was really just hitting home for me and while I was writing this message. And that's the reason why people like King Solomon or the rich and famous today can pursue all the world has to offer and still find themselves empty and wanting more. We're not from around here. See, we're not actually made for this world. We're made for heaven. We're designed with heaven in mind. We're actually spiritual beings having a temporary physical experience. And because of that, this physical world cannot ever truly satisfy us. Because it's a physical world and we're spiritual beings. Famed Christian writer C.S. Lewis, he said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. I'll read that again because it's so profound. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. So I want to work my way through various desires that we have that show that we're made for another world but first I just want to kind of root this in scripture a little bit more and you know scripture very very explicitly declares on multiple occasions that we're not from around here we're not made for this this world and especially for Christians this rhetoric is really really dialed up and it's it's a big theme throughout scripture so I'm going to go to my first point here which is the Bible tells me so so the Bible tells me we ain't from around here So Jesus, the man himself, he says in John 18.36, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. John 17.14, Jesus is referring to his followers and he says, they do not belong to this world just as I do not belong to this world. Continuing throughout scripture here, 1 Peter 2.11, it says, dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners... To keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. So Scripture will often use that kind of terminology: you're temporary here, or you're, um, or you're a foreigner. Uh, Another another word that's quite common would be be sojourner, which kind of just means you're just passing through. Uh, Another one would be pilgrim, that you're on, uh, you're on a very sacred journey. So you're kind of again, you're, you're just coming through here. Sometimes it's you're a stranger. Or you're a stranger in a foreign land. The Bible used that language. Or if you if you uh, still read the the old English Bible, um, the King James version written in the 1600s, they would actually use the word alien to describe you. Now we're not talking about extraterrestrials here. That's actually a very new concept historically, but it's a it's it's actual traditional definition. It would actually just be a synonym for foreigner. I did really toy with the idea of referring to this whole message as like the alien invasion or something. Um, but I, you know, I just thought that was so on brand with St. Paul. might get some clicks online, but it also might make people extremely confused and they might think we're even more weird than we really are in here. But anyway, so if you ever think, oh, the Bible talks about aliens, foreigners, anyways, and that's what we're all like. We don't belong here. So scripture tells us that we need to find our real selves in God, not in this world. We are not of this world. Jeremiah 1.5 talks about that we are known by God before we are even born. Before he has knit us together in our mother's womb. You have to think about that for a second. Normally, you would think that our identity comes from things like our culture, our family, even our name, our citizenship. um, The things you like to do for fun, your education, um, the friends you have, how much money you have, all that kind of stuff. But think about it. God knows you before you've taken a single breath in this world. Showing that who you are really is not the least bit contingent on who the world says you are. See, our identity is not from this world. Nor is our purpose. Our entire purpose, the entire purpose of all humanity is that we would have this relationship with God. And we would be with him forever. And that purpose has existed long before we have. So our our identity and our purpose, that's kind of like the two base psychological needs of, of, of humans. And those were established before we were. Again, showing we're really not of this world. Now, Christians are actually people that have discovered this, that realize that there's more to live for than this world. That we have an identity that supersedes our earthly identity. We have a purpose that supersedes our earthly purpose. And we get to walk in who we were always meant to be. Philippians 3.20 says that we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior. Now we could read a bunch more scripture. Um, there's, there's, There's a lot that talks about Christians especially are called to be different. We're not called to fit in. We're called to stand out. We're called to be that city on the hill. We're called to be the salt of the earth but that's a concept that we often struggle with because we love to fit in. We were never born to fit in. We were born to stand out. So we're going to get to our first point here that is the of the points that is referring to the type of things that the signs that kind of point to the fact that we're not from around here, these desires that we have as humans that point to something greater than this world. So the first one is the universal moral law. So there's this really strange phenomenon. If you were to study all sorts of human cultures all throughout history, is that it seems that humans have an instinctive ability to know right and wrong, what's good and what's evil. And the key point here is that it supersedes culture. So this is not a manufactured code of ethics that countries come up with. It's like you know when when the world was kind of discovering its itself and all these different nations were all over the place and the laws that were in place were extremely similar which is very peculiar and you know it just was similar across all of humanity and it points to well if like the only real rational explanation of how this could happen of all these different cultures throughout history that are radically different how could they all have come up with a very similar code of ethics you have to point to a otherworldly origin. So C.S. Lewis says that there's far greater moral similarity across cultures than differences. So if you were to do this study, you would find out in just studying the different laws of different cultures that there's far more similarities than differences. Seemingly, human beings without really being told, without communicating with one another, came up with the same standards for good and evil, right and wrong. Oxford University actually did a study on this and they corroborated C.S. Lewis's uh, claim there. And they studied all sorts of different cultures and they found that there was like this universal morality, this existence of shared values, things like considering the needs of others, cooperation, loyalty, reciprocity, bravery, respect, fairness. It goes on. Now this is a very, very peculiar thing because within a typical explanation for our existence within the world, um, you could refer to it as the uh, naturalism, meaning there is no supernatural element involved. Um, that would come from Darwinian evolution. We just evolved, you know, it all just happened magically somehow over billions of years. It's just all science. There's no God involved, so naturalism, that's kind of the, the dominating philo- uh, philosophy. But yeah, it doesn't have a good explanation of how this could happen. How could you have all sorts of different cultures with the same, or very very similar code of ethics, same more the same morals, without ever communicating with with each other until much further down the line historically, and also within you know that Darwinian theory, the whole uh, like the thing about evolution is it's like it's pretty nasty. It's all about survival of the fittest. It's all about the strongest um, dominating the weak of like a dog-eat-dog society. So if, if, if that's our origin and that's how we developed as humans, how in the world would we have such phenomenal ethics that take care of one another and stand up for, for what's right? It really does not match very well with the secular definition for our existence. Of course though, the Bible tells us exactly why this is. Paul answers this in Romans when he's explaining how these Gentiles, as Christianity is spreading, they're they're meeting all these Greek people from all over the place. These non-Jewish people that weren't taught the Old Testament scriptures. They weren't taught all all the laws of God. But they kept finding that they had this instinctive knowledge of God's law. Romans 2, 14 and 15 here says, Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts. For their own conscience and their thoughts either accuse them or tell them that they are doing right. So the conscience that we all have, that every human being has, that's something that God has put within us. Um, uh, Paul takes this concept from Jeremiah 31-33 where God's talking and he says, I will put the law within them. I will write it on their hearts. So everyone actually has the law of God written on their heart. That's why we have... Like this conscience, this guide within us that's telling us this is right, this is wrong. And that's kind of the the biblical explanation of why we end up in a culture, or sorry, in a world where all these different cultures somehow instinctively have this idea of what's right and wrong and have an agreeance, a very significant agreeance within that. So here's another phenomenon that, that happens here. This is the fascination with the supernatural and eternity. So again, you study history, you go through all these different cultures, you're going to find a continual fascination with the supernatural. Once again, if you look at the predominant philosophical theory of human's existence, naturalism, again, meaning there is no supernatural, it literally makes zero sense of why there is so much interest in the supernatural if we come from no supernatural whatsoever. It's a direct contradiction of itself. So, where would that come from? What's going on here? So Romans 1 answers this real well. This is not on my PowerPoint because God told me this right before I walked into church today. And I was like, man, what does this great Bible verse come to me? to last minute, but anyways. Romans 1, it says that God makes the truth known about him obvious to everybody. Through everything he has made, his qualities are clear. His eternal power and divine nature are there for people to see. He actually goes so far to say that there is no excuse for not knowing him. Also, biblically, Jesus says that he is drawing everyone towards himself. God is on the move, drawing every human being. Whether they believe in him or not, whether they even think the supernatural exists or not, he is there drawing them towards himself. Um, John 15, 16 talks about that, you know, God is the one who gets the relationship going between us. He's, he kicks things off. He starts things off. We don't go and find him. He comes and finds us. Another way of saying this, John 4:19 says God loved us first. Us. He started the relationship between us. In John 6:44 Jesus says that we would actually never find God if God wasn't drawing people to himself first. So why does the, you know, this humanity have this obsession with the supernatural? Even in a society that promotes naturalism, that's because God himself is drawing all men unto him. He is making himself obvious that they would understand his power and his nature. To the point that no one will have any any excuse for not knowing him. Also of note is that our origin as humans, according to the Bible, is that we started in the Garden of Eden. We started in paradise with God. We started in his supernatural presence, surrounded by supernatural beings. That's our origin as humanity. And I would say that we ever since then have had this yearning to return to that. It's basically passed through our DNA in our system that we were born for the supernatural. We were born to be surrounded by it, to live with it. Also, interestingly enough, if you were to do a survey of the, you know, the most popular movies of all time, you're going to find, strangely enough, that the vast, vast majority of the top movies of all time all deal with supernatural power, or just the supernatural in some way. The world is obsessed with this. And just think of all the books, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, all the stuff that's out there. Another thing that we're, we're just obsessed with, as as humans, and it's just all over the place, throughout culture, throughout history, is this fascination, this obsession with eternity, thinking about what happens after the end of our lives, what happens after death. Another good biblical explanation of why this is the case, Ecclesiastes 3.11, Solomon writes that God has placed eternity in our hearts. So similar to how he's written his law on our hearts, he has also given us this desire towards eternity to always have this desire of what's gonna happen after I die every human being walks around with that within them what's gonna happen after I die? there I- there is a life beyond the next again that that's a pretty weird thing within the whole naturalism framework we're taught here in school today no good explanation for why that is secularly it's also worth noting that of all the people that talked about life after death, the only person to show that they actually have power over death is Jesus. When he rose from the grave and showed that the eternity he's talking about is obviously the correct one. Fourthly, another strange human phenomenon that shows we are not, we're not from around here is the continual pursuit towards utopia. For those who don't know what that word means, that's another word for Paradise. So we have a very strange obsession with this as people. Both on the societal level, creating a societal utopia, but also a personal one as well. Creating a societal paradise or a personal paradise. And again, you look throughout humanity, you look throughout history, look at all these different cultures, different religions, and you're going to see this element there as well. But you'll also see that every time humans attempt to create this paradise apart from god it is a complete and utter disaster it can't be done see perfection can only come from perfection we are humans and we are not perfect in all of our ways we are fallible creatures perfection is a human impossibility i know one of the things i struggle with is perfectionism and i need to be reminded that i it's literally impossible chris it's literally impossible <laughs> you're a human but it's a strange thing that we have just deep within us. We, we just really like when things are perfect. Why is that? And we project that in this, our own little perfect scenario of what we want life to be like that. We project that into society. But every attempt we try at it, we fail. There's a very, very stark reminder historically of what happens when humans think they can create a paradise. They can create heaven, essentially. Heaven here on earth without God. Now, in the 1800s, 1700s, 1800s, there was a big philosophical shift in Western society away from God, away towards uh, things, rationalism, naturalism, um, like the whole theory of evolution would have, would have been in that mix. And then another very, very predominant one that was in there was what's called nihilism, and that um, largely comes from a, a guy by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche, probably just pronounce his name, but... He's too dead to get offended, but anyways, um, he's very famous. If you know his name, he's very famous for saying, "God is dead. We have killed him." And he was proud that we, as humans, had evolved because he was believing in that to this point that we don't we don't actually need this belief in God. We don't need these shackles of the supernatural. The here and now is all there is. And we're the product of evolution. Earth isn't special in the cosmos. There's really no basis for morality. Nothing's really good. Nothing's really evil. Everything is meaningless. Though Nietzsche didn't really believe in God, he did kind of wonder what was going to happen to society if we abandoned God, if we moved away from his morals, from his ways, from the meaning and the purpose that we get from, from being created in the image of God. He did wonder about that. And he worried that the 1900s were going to be the most bloodiest in history if humanity moved away from God. He turned out, uh, turned out to be prophetic. Because there was this group of people that took the, you know, this theory, Darwin's theory, they took uh, Nietzsche's theory, they, uh, all, and they also packaged it with Marxism, and then we have something called Communism which um, one of the big tenets of communism was atheism. We were going to build a society without God. That's why they would outlaw religion in those places. Tried to build a utopia here on earth. And in the 1900s, hundreds of millions of innocent people were killed under communism. See, every attempt of of human beings at creating a utopian society has failed miserably. And again, even on a personal level, you try to create a paradise, that's actually impossible. Because there's some problems we can't fix. Scripture talks about this. Scripture talks about that all of creation is cursed, Romans 8, 20 and 21. So against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. So... The whole world is messed up because of sin, because of our rebellion against God. Verse 23 in that chapter goes on to say that us as humans, we long that our bodies would be released from sin and suffering. So that's one of the drives behind the human desire for utopia, the human desire uh, for this perfect society. We want to live in a society without pain, a society without evil, a society without crime, a society without suffering. We want to live our own personal life. We don't want any of that in our personal life. This is a longing that's within us. And again, it's been in there since the beginning because that's that was our origin as human, as humans. We were in the garden of evil. There was sorry, the garden of Eden. There was no evil, there was no suffering. It was amazing. But now we find that there's this big, big problem that we're facing down, is that we can't eliminate evil, we can't eliminate suffering, we, and we can't eliminate death. So even if you build yourself you know, quite the little nest egg in this world, you're going to lose it all. You're going to die. You can't keep it forever. You also have no guarantee of avoiding evil coming against you. You have no guarantee of avoiding any kind of a suffering either. So if we have a desire to not have... These problems that the world is full of, and we have no ability to solve those problems, but we yearn not to have them. It again is showing that we are made for something beyond this world. If we're yearning for things that this world can't offer, it is showing that we're not from around here. If we are yearning for perfection, it shows that we were designed for a perfect world. We know scripturally the only way that's happening is with God in heaven. When we return to the original design and we get to go back to living in paradise with God. Revelations 21, 3-4. This is John when he has a vision of heaven, the heaven to come. He says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Our bodies are yearning to experience that. It's woven into us right down to the cellular level to desperately want a life where there will be no more crying, no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain, and all of it will just be gone for forever. Next point here is another strange human phenomenon we have, is the obsession with love and affirmation. See, we live in a world that's obsessed with love. Some studies would show that 90% of the songs that are written are love songs to some degree. It's kind of annoying in my mind. (laughs) Use some creativity, come on. But anyway, 90% of the song written about love and relationships. Then again, think of all the books written with some sort of romantic element. Or just think of the movies. It's all over the place. All over our culture. Or just think kind of more so at a personal level. How there's a powerful driving force of love. Love will make people do crazy things, as they say. Love will even make somebody lay their life down for somebody else. Again, no real good explanation in a world of naturalism, in a world of dog-eat-dog, survival of the fittest, why love would be so powerful like that. You'd think we would just not care. Also, what's interesting is that rejection is arguably the most painful emotion that we experience as humans. It's horrific. Why does it bother us so much? Again, in the world of evolution and naturalism, that should be happening all the time. We should be used to it. But it hurts. Rejection hurts terribly. No real good secular explanation of why that just sears our soul the way it does. But the Bible has a great explanation for all this, as always. First John 4, verse 7 says, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. And then the rest of the chapter goes on to say repeatedly, God is love. See, God is the very personification of love. So it's no surprise that humans that are designed in his image would also have love as one of the foremost defining characteristics of their life. We also know that God's love is unconditional, it's unfailing. The love that we were always designed for is one that we could never escape from, one that we could never earn, one that we could never unearn. His love is unconditional. That is why rejection hurts so badly, because we were never designed for it. We were designed to be in perfect love with God, a God that loves us unconditionally, loves us unfailingly for all of eternity. But here we live in a world where we are constantly hurt by by love, and we feel this, this rejection. And we can't handle it very well because we weren't designed for it. So again, there's this strange phenomenon that people are craving a love that the world can't actually satisfy. Showing that we're craving for something above this world. We're craving perfect love. Even in the most wonderful, loving relationship you can be in, that love still fails. That person still is going to hurt you. And it will leave you wondering and, and wanting more and yearning towards this perfect love. But the world can never provide that. Yet we have this deep, deep yearning for it. Another thing as humans is that we are wired for affirmation. We love when someone tells us, good job, well done, you made it, you did it, you're great. Now just look at little children and how much they just crave affirmation. They just light up when they receive it. I don't know what the kids are going to do today in children's church, but when they come out, uh, they might have you know, this little craft they made, or this little coloring thing that they did, and you just watch that they'll come up to their parents and show, look what I did, look what I did. And then, let's get real here, even though it's a terrible drawing, <laughs> whatever, the, the parent will just grab them and hug them and be like, this is amazing, this is, this is so great, you did such a good job. And they just feel so proud and so wonderful. Just watch their faces when they're up here and they're being treated like they're special, which is one of our goals as a church. That's the way Jesus treated kids. They love it. So it's in us, it's in us, like right from the very beginning. but here's the problem again you could be the most famous the most decorated the most awarded person on the face of the earth and still be craving more again some of the most famous people out there that have all the awards that have all the affirmation that have all sorts of people saying you're great you're awesome you're good at what you do you would think they would be the happiest people on earth being so beloved but time and again they complain of being absolutely miserable What's going on here? See, Solomon was like this. He literally was the the most famous guy. People around him constantly saying, you're amazing. You're literally the smartest person who has ever lived. Everything you do is great. And he just had like this posse of people surrounding him, continually pumping him up. Yet he felt terrible. He had all of that, and he was like, this is meaningless. So again, we have a desire for affirmation that the world can't completely fill. It helps a little bit, but you could get all the affirmation in the world, all the kudos, all the good for yous, all the we love you, you're great. You can get all of that and still be wanting more. Here's something cool. Every human being was designed to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. As we enter into heaven and receive our eternal reward, those are the words that we are designed to hear. Those are the words that we are designed to work for. That is the affirmation that we crave as human beings for God to say, the God of all creation, to say, well done, good and faithful servant. It's like God is our parent, we are his children, and we just absolutely crave to hear that from him. And nothing else will ever come close to filling that. Bringing us to the conclusion here. I started with a quote from C.S. Lewis, I'm going to end with one. I'm going to have to do this one twice. Um, I love C.S. Lewis, the only problem is I have to read him like three times to understand him. Uh, Yeah, he's deep like that, and he uses a lot of big words. But anyways, here we go, here's another quote. This says, all your life. An unattainable ecstasy has hovered just beyond your grasp of your consciousness. The day is coming when you will wa- when you will wake to find beyond all hope you have attained it, or else that it was within your reach and you lost it forever. Now, I'll say it again: All your life, an unattainable ecstasy has hovered just beyond the grasp of your consciousness. The day is coming when you will wake to find beyond all hope that you have attained it or else that it was within your reach and you lost it forever. See, all these desires that we have for these things that the world can't truly satisfy, they're not delusions, but rather they're indicators of our truest situation. That's that we don't belong here. Now we can try to satisfy these desires with the world but as Solomon said, that's really meaningless. That's a failing endeavor. It's like chasing the wind. You're never going to chase it. You'll never be truly satisfied, you're truly wasting your time. Or we can experience the ecstasy of all of our wildest desires and dreams and longings of our heart becoming true when we get to enter into heaven and get to live with God for forever. At the end of our life, we are either going to experience that amazing feeling of everything we've ever longed for being met, every desire we've ever had being met, every dream we ever had being met, or we're going to be met with this horrific situation where we realize that all of our desires, all of our longings of our life were so close. We were so close to grasping them, but we chose to go after the world instead of after God. See, the Apostle Paul, in his writings, you can tell his heart is broken for the Christians that are Christians basically in name only, whose hearts really aren't for God, who, who are going to miss out on heaven. He wrote this to the, the church. Remember, he's writing to the church, not the world, writing to the church in Philippi, Philippians 3, 17 through 20. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine. And learn from those who follow our example. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. He also wrote to the church in Coloss. We have this in the letter of Colossians 3, 1-4. It says, since you have been raised to a new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all of his glory. We have to be very careful as Christians to not be duped into chasing the wind, into chasing things that will not satisfy our souls. Lest we come to the end of our life and realize that all the pursuits of our life were completely meaningless. We end up like Solomon did. We could have it all, but still be found lacking. Or, or unless, you know, we we spent our entire life chasing everything the world had to offer and then we miss out on heaven. You know what, and, God's not being mean when he's not allowing people into heaven. Basically, what heaven and hell are is you basically are choosing where you get to go. If, if, if your life shows that you want the things of God, that you want to be with God, that he is, is your foremost love, he is the love of your life, well, yeah, heaven's the place you're going to go. If you are more so concerned with everything else and the things that not, aren't God, that's, wh- that's what hell is. It's, it's being apart from God and all of his goodness. we need to know that only God can truly satisfy us. And even in this life here, we need to be reminded that the world is constantly searching for this morality that they can't actually figure out. Unless, of course, you know God. We know that there is a good and evil that supersedes all the human constructs of right and wrong, all the laws of man. So here on this life, we need to make sure that we are king into his version of right and wrong, his morality. We are walking in what he says is good. Also, we know that there's this yearning within us for the supernatural. And so we need to make sure that the supernatural is our focus above the natural. That is what we were designed for. That is the order that we were designed to experience. Also in this life, we need to be reminded that nothing here will ever ever be perfect. Nothing in this life will ever truly, truly satisfy us. And when we're trying to build up our life, to try to create this little paradise for ourselves, we need to be reminded that it's really actually not going to satisfy us. It's not going to really work out because we can't deal with certain things. We can't deal with creation being cursed. We can't deal with the suffering in the world. We can't stop that. We, we, can't, uh, we can't stop evil. We can't stop death. We also need to be reminded when we're out there in this world searching for love, we need to be reminded first and foremost there's only one love that's going to truly satisfy you. There is one love that you were designed to experience first and foremost, and that is the agape love of God, the unconditional love of God. There is no love like God's. There's also no affirmation like His. If you find yourself at an affirmation deficit or a love deficit, the world is going to manipulate you. They're going to chew you up and spit you out. But when you're walking around filled with the love of God, filled with His affirmation and who He says you are, you will not be manipulated into the traps that the, uh, the world has. So let us live a life that honors God, that chases after heaven, that has our eyes set on the things of heaven that has our eyes set on the other country, the other world that we are designed for. To remember that we are foreigners in this land. So, we're sojourners, we're pilgrims. We're just making our way through here. This is not where we're from. We ain't from around here. And may this remind us of the glory that is to come. It's going to be absolutely incredible beyond comprehension.